So you're busy trying to fight a war and an important day in your religious calendar comes up. What do you do? How do you deal with the fact that your religion demands that you set a day aside to honor this or atone for that when you're trying to make everyone wearing the other uniform die for their country? The holidays interact with war in such peculiar ways. These two phenomena are both so human and yet so incompatible. In the context of war, holidays make no sense. And in the context of holidays, war makes no sense. History has lots of interesting examples of this puzzling interplay. In 1968, North Vietnam took advantage of a supposed ceasefire surrounding the Tet holiday to launch a major offensive across South Vietnam in one of the bloodiest chapters of that war. A few years later, a coalition of Arab states launched a surprise attack to try and retake the Sinai Peninsula from Israel on Yom Kippur, one of the holiest days in the Jewish calendar. That one also happened to take place during the Islamic observance of Ramadan, which is another non-ideal time to be waging war from a piety standpoint. If these days are so holy, you would think that the nations that espouse these religions would shy away from offending the Almighty by using the Almighty as cover for the element of surprise. You'd think a lot more lightning bolts would be dropping if the Almighty gave a shit. Precedent would indicate that the Almighty does not, and that whatever religion the commanders claim, the advantage of that false sense of holiday security is too good to resist in a clash of civilizations. Well, today's film is partly about that tension. It's a war movie, and kind of a Christmas movie, too. And we know this episode comes out on the last day of Hanukkah, so we're sorry about that. It's just the way the dice tumbled. Keith Gordon's psychological drama pits a squad of U.S. Army dudes against an at-first unseen group of German soldiers somewhere in the Ardennes over the Christmas holiday, and what starts as a fairly slow-paced reconnoiter turns into a freaky ghost movie for a minute before the soldiers make contact with each other and start a delicate dance toward the idea of the Americans accepting the Germans' surrender. The two squads even get in a late-night snowball fight, but despite the warm, fuzzy feelings of holiday cheer, this is a dangerous situation populated by soldiers who are not all stable and not all on the same page. We're late in the war, our guys just wish they were home, and the insanity of war feels especially onerous given the time of year. Not to mention all that last-minute holiday shopping they're not getting done because the Germans are building frozen corpse sculptures in the woods. I imagine our listeners feel the same way. How, at a time like this, are we still listening to this podcast? I don't know what day it is. I have no watch, so I don't know what time it is. I'm not even sure of my name. The next thing you know, they'll be making me a general. Today on Friendly Fire, a midnight clear. Welcome to Friendly Fire. It's amazing how much profanity goes on in this war movie podcast, if you're tuned in to hear it. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. No cursing this episode, gentlemen. That was a good quote to start the episode with, Ben, I'd just like to say. Well chosen. (laughs) Thank you. It's a very, very strange movie. Very different tone from a, the average Friendly Fire film, I feel like. Yeah, this film is 80% tone. Yeah. For me, the, my whole experience of it was like, hmm, we're, now we're in this tone. Now we're in that <laughs> tone. Yeah. The film debut of Gary Sinise. No. <laughs> that's that's amazing to me. I always that can't feel, be true. I felt like Gary Sinise was born 40 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot like you in that way, Ben. Gary Sinise, first of all, was almost 40 years old. He was 37. Okay. And also, he is like far and away the oldest member of the cast by by at least five years. Maybe in some cases, he's 15 years older than Ethan Hawke and, and 10 years older than everybody else. And this is his first film role? 
Yeah, but you stick him in those glasses and you tie his hair back. You just give him that opportunity later on when he takes him off, lets his hair down. You realize how beautiful he is. I didn't really get the mother thing to his character. They make the case early on that he kind of mothers the rest of the men, but he's already totally off his nut at the beginning of this movie. Like the the opening of the film is about his mind leaving him. So Yeah, he seems like we, the mom from Sopranos. Oh, <laughs> listen, tell me knows everything. I was unclear about the timeline of the formation of the of the squad of the brigade because at first it seemed like they were all in different combat areas and were brought together uh, because they'd scored so high and they were, they were taken from other units. And then later on we see boot camp scenes with them all, all training together as like fresh recruits. And we have the whole lose your virginity scene. So, yeah, all the scenes I guess when they were when they're all 18 and mother is 26 in the <laughs> in the 2 years it took for them to get to uh get to the beginning of this movie. Yeah, maybe he was a real real mothering figure, a real marm. He was a real shattered man though in this movie. Yeah, no kidding. He really fucked the whole plan up. He did. I had pre Biloxi blues cringe going into this because <laughs> we got a lot of letters adam it's bluxy bluxy blues well no one knows where i get my accent so i'll, I'll continue to <laughs> confound people on that but like i i was hoping we wouldn't get the sandlot for battle of the bulge and i think <laughs> the the voiceover could have gone in that direction and i think i think for a lot of reasons it didn't yeah this movie does not try to be funny at no. any point there is no there's nothing funny about it yeah even when there's like four guys nervous to lose their virginity or a snowball fight or like impromptu christmas carols it, it's never played for for jokey jokes i wonder to what extent it is it has to do with weather and time because in biloxi blues like it's it's hot and bright and sunny, and there's something that is so smothery about the location for this film. It is so cold, and it is so dark that I wonder if, if it suffocates the idea of that kind of treacly, old-feeling old comedy that we would get from a lesser film. A lesser film? I mean, I, they're just not playing it for laughs, right? No, nobody in this movie is a comedian and everybody in Bluxy Blues like is cast as a comedic type. I feel like the Janus story could have pitched this film into Biloxi Blues territory. Well, except that that story is played as absolute tragedy. I mean, they come out of the bathroom and she's there t saying that she was going to commit suicide, but now she's willing to take their virginities as her last, as her dying act. When that scene was over, I was not clear whether or not the movie suggested that she got on the bus and went and committed and f like followed through on her suicide she, pact. She <laughs> stepped in front of the bus instead of walking on it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that was, there, there wasn't any comedy in the setup. They, they drained all the comedy out, right? When they were in the bathroom and they're like, how, why is it taking him so long? Like that was the closest we were getting to a, the setup of something where somebody would be like, Eugene. Right. But then they step out in it and they step into like a giant cow patty of like awkward sorrow, which is kind of how I think of this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the, I mean, friendly fire nominally a war movie podcast, but really awkward sorrow is the, uh, is the brand promise. That's what people come for. And I think it's casting. I mean, the, the casting of this movie is pick five uh, hot young actors of 1991. Not, not one of them. If you think about everybody in this movie, not one of them has ever played a comedic role. I mean, I guess Ari Gross went on to be like a comedic television figure. 
<laughs> should have known Edwards was going to take forever. John C. McGinley is kind of the is kind of as close as this movie has to a funny character, but he's like he's such a morbid character. He's playing him in a very John C. McGinley way, which kind of I think really works. Like it 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 makes his his you know officiousness and 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 pigheadedness feel like a threat even when he's not ordering people to their deaths he feels like a dangerous presence because he just is such a bozo his physicality in this movie is is really well played like he doesn't get many scenes but when you do get him he's you know lounged in a giant chair uh for his shave or he's in someone's face or he's lounging in another chair in the chateau yeah i i like his choices in this movie and they're very hateable choices he's playing the exact role of eddie albert in attack (laughs) (laughs) this movie does like talk a little bit about the ages of the the putative ages of the characters like that they're all super young guys and the John C. McGinley guy being like the old man who is still quite young feels like something that a lot of World War II movies sort of ignore. I mean, I mean, especially in the 90s, like they, you know, put older guys in those roles, I guess, because maybe because we like had started to think of World War II as a war that older people had fought in because they were all olds. By the nineties, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought that I thought that was kind of a an interesting choice, and the, it, it does have like that moment when McGinley like completely lays into Ethan Hawke for uh, for having like a messy house when he comes and, and visits the chateau, <laughs> like like oh god, like yeah, they they're they're living like a bunch of college boys because they kind of are. The idea of a house in the woods during wartime is so interesting to me because like the the idea of safety is gone, safety and comfort because you you've become a target, haven't you? That conflict I think is just ever present like oh god, it's got to be nice to to light a fire in this fireplace, but what about the smoke? Right. They and they seem to be like they make the case that they're smart guys but they also never feel well trained or seasoned yeah and they you know he goes out and looks at that smoke and it's like oh that's not so bad like like he has a good sense of how to assess whether the smoke is going to be a problem or not like also lighting a fire is going to light up the windows of the house and betray your position well that so this is this is i guess one of the first questions i have about about the tone of this movie because the, the, the setup is that these guys are all real smart and put together in this group. Um, this was somebody's bright idea. And then this, this, they were kind of squandered in that they were just sort of put out into the field as a regular combat unit. You know, they're, they're an intelligence unit, but they're being used basically as a recon unit. And so half of them are wiped out. And and we hear several times like what a waste that all these really smart guys were all put together and all killed on the same day. It's kind of the, you know, it's like the the refrain about World War One that all the great poets of what would have been the great poets of the 20th century all died in Flanders Field. In this <laughs> case, it seemed like these guys all would have gone to work for Raytheon. All the all the great poets of Raytheon <laughs> in the fifties were all killed. <laughs> but then, uh, this is the thing that confused me: is that their intelligence, their their relative intelligence, and and I have never seen Kevin Dillon cast as like a really smart guy, and I didn't, yeah. and, I, and it seemed like against type here too. But none of their intelligence. It was a very strange role for him. Yeah, like, but I mean, I, I, I loved his, I loved his performance. It but, might be the first per- Kevin Dillon performance that I thought was actually like pretty good. Mm-hmm. He's actually got an impressive resume. What's your problem with Kevin Dillon? He he felt a little out of place in this movie because he looks like he is from 1987, not 1944. Mm-hmm. 
and and I think the rest of them kind of look like past people. They look they look era appropriate, and Kevin Dillon just looks like he's he's like <laughs> I don't know, like he rode a skateboard to Germany or something. But the emotional truth of his performance felt more authentic than I'm accustomed to. You know, he's, he usually plays kind of like a brash asshole and he's like self-confident, but, you know, but but cares about his the rest of his guys in this movie. We should watch Delta Force next. <laughs> we should. Bump, are you saying we should bump it up the queue? <laughs> yeah, I mean he's in that, right? <laughs> how did do, how does 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 he have the same sensitivity when he's acting across from Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin? <laughs> the thing is, like his portrayal of Bunny in Platoon, he's one of the iconic characters of of Platoon, and he plays a real like uncooked uh, undercooked sociopath in that movie. Yeah, but you could be forgiven for feeling like, yeah, he just rode a skateboard there and that was his natural kind of uh take on it this is just i mean this is like six full years later this movie and he now seems kind of hard you know like he's the natural born killer in this cast and he wears it i thought really well yeah but my point my point about the about your comment to the effect of like the uh, lighting a fire in the fireplace and whatnot like the script has this jewel at its heart, which is that unlike most World War II movies where you got a guy from Queens and a guy from Denver and a guy from Florida and they're all thrown together. Classic Denver guy. In, in, in this movie, <laughs> you got a guy from Queens, you got a guy from Denver and a guy from Florida, but they're all real high IQ guys. And yet that high IQ thing really never the the screen the screenwriter never exploits it. We like they they just do a bungled mission like every other bungled mission. To be fair, the Germans like start with the psyops and then like downgrade to snow grenades. Yeah, like. they're they're teasing. <laughs> I mean, that's so German. Am I right? They're real teasers. That scene when they when they are they stop the jeeps and come come across the frozen corpse soldiers fixed in an embrace standing up in the middle of the road and they start like poking and prodding at it. I was like, this thing is is booby trapped. Like such a booby. This thing is full of bombs and (laughs) they are all going to be blown apart in this moment. And then it's just not right. (laughs) There isn't a language barrier like that. Isn't the problem here? It's it's an action barrier. It's what (laughs) these guys are doing. Yeah, I knew that it was booby trapped because I've seen a million war movies and I know what it means when a soldier walks up to something that he's like what's this you know (laughs) like that always means he's about to get turned into cat food and then i was like well maybe they don't because they haven't seen that trope a million times at like from that moment onward i was like i have no idea where this movie is going i have no idea what's going to happen it could be a horror movie it could be that's the vibe that i got ben because it's not just a quality confined to the war genre when you fuck around with a dead body it, yeah. it raises the stakes into somewhere else, into somewhere very dangerous. It did feel like a horror movie setup at that point. And there's so much like body stuff in this, like the the later when they bathe father's body, like they they all take a bath in this bathtub and then put the corpse of their dead friend and like and it's it, it's almost like a religious rite the way they clean his body together. They should call that bathtub Janice with how it comforted all of the men. Wow. <laughs> wow. Such a, such a low bar. But, but, but that's where the tone of the movie and the plot of the movie diverge. So here you've got this high IQ group. None of them, none of them speak German. Okay, like, all right, well, that seems like a screenwriter's either, either it's a missed opportunity or that, or it should be made a bigger there should be a bigger deal made of it because the yiddish guy stands there and goes like i don't know what you're saying and the guy's like i want your officer 
And he's like, do you mean, what did you say? Like, you want to, you want to get an office space? And he's like, office, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, office, uh, office space is a great movie. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And then <laughs> the red stapler, classic, really funny stuff. But then it cuts like to the next scene and the same character is like Arya, uh, or I'm sorry, Ari is reporting to the Ethan Hawke character and he's like, they were on the rest, they were on the Russian front and they had a terrible time of it. And then they got sent here and they've decided that they want to surrender, but they want to set up a, you know, he's just like, all of a sudden he's gotten, he's gone from, I, I don't speak even pigeon German to like, I've divined the secret of these people. <laughs> they told me their life story now, <laughs> but there's no, but his like, his supposed intelligence as some 150 IQ guy doesn't really ever come into play there. And there's several scenes like that. Like they're in this chateau and at no point does anyone go upstairs and just station themselves in a window. Like you're, you don't have to go out to a cold foxhole 200 yards away. You could just pull the curtains back in the window. There's already a fire in the fireplace. They know you're there. Just look out the windows. You see, see, see for a mile. I think that this movie gets away with some of that stuff because it has this sort of magical realism tone. And there, there it is. I don't think that there's any actual magic depicted ever, but it, it kind of feels like, you know, somebody could turn into a bird at any moment. It does. <laughs> And I think a lot of that has to do with the with the soundtrack because yeah. the music that's playing is somewhere between like Vangelis and like the Miami Vice soundtrack. Every once in a while, you know, they're they're in the woods and it's like <laughs> what are we what is happening? Then there's a bunch of there's a bunch of gladiator music playing. Yeah. It it really did feel magical. One of the magical qualities of films of this era, that sort of uh, video portraiture of characters that you'll get when you introduce them in a film from the early 90s. Like Kevin Dillon gets one of these moments. Like these characters look directly to camera and the camera's moving around them as we talk about them using voiceover. I think between the audio that John is describing and some of these visuals, it's not uh, it's not verite. It's... It's something else like yeah. like it's it's stylized in a way that suggests the presence of a magic, I think, in the way that you guys are describing. And all of these elements work together to make that suggestion. Yes. Yeah. The paintings in the attic that, that appear. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are mm -hmm. the, the paintings appear to be observing us? Yeah. Uh, we see that scene as they're walking through the, the forest and. And we see a frozen hand coming up out of the ice. Right. And we're seeing it from a, from an omniscient viewpoint, like they never notice it. And it suggests that that what under this frozen landscape, there are just dead bodies all around them. All of these factors, I think, are why at least I was very surprised at the climax of this film and what happens during. <laughs> yeah, like uh, right up until it, I I could not tell where we were going. I was like, I wondering like, is this going to work? And if it does, will it feel satisfying? Like, will the, will it feel like we've watched something that was worth watching if they like do the thing that they are setting out to do, which is take seven prisoners and like help, help those seven prisoners not uh, reap reprisals for their families back home in Germany. Yeah, is that going to be enough? I thought it was really a high degree of difficulty to introduce Mother as a chaos agent and then at least personally totally forget about his danger scene to scene, especially in this moment when they're when they're at the the uh the Wehrmacht cabin. Like I was impressed that I was surprised in this moment, even though the film told us all we needed to know about what was likely to happen in a scene like this. By keeping the secret from Mother, he was always going to appear at the wrong time. Absolutely. It was a fait accompli, and then somehow this film sleight of hands that out of your mind just at the right moment. Hiding Mother from 
the rest of the characters also effectively hit him from me. I was very surprised when he starts shooting. And I and I kind of like, I was hard on myself in this moment. I was like, you should have seen that coming. Like, this, is, this is basic movie math here. Were you guys surprised or did you see it? Did you see it coming? I did not see it coming. I, I, I was I was surprised and I, I, I wondered, because he's also kind of off in the forest always, so you don't, like you don't make him as Gary Sinise in the moment when he starts shooting. Yeah. You rely on the dialogue when, when father runs toward him and, and shouts mother. I thought for sure it was the coming German army that, that had been referred to several times up until now. Like we got to do this now before the German ar- army comes and find these, finds these people. My head went in a, a number of directions. One of which was, you know, like they went up here to like, reconnoiter this area because another detachment stopped you know answering their cell phone i was like like who could like this could be them this could be somebody that john c mcginley sent like who who knows (laughs) it took me completely by surprise and i think had it had either its intended effect or or a, a powerful effect which was disappointment disappointment that this was the movie that we were in now, like spent a lot of time getting to a place where I was like, okay, so the plot of this movie is that these guys are going to get captured. Okay. We really, it took us a long time to get there, but I'm ready now. (laughs) We're going to shoot these guns in the air and they're going to capture these guys. Okay. And then that, then all of a sudden mother starts killing him and then everybody ends up dead. And I was like, okay, that's not the plot of the movie. What, what is the, what is the plot of the movie now? Is the, is what is the plot of the movie? Are we, Oh, we're hiding it from mother. It was frustrating for me. It was, it was a frustrating turn, frustrating that I didn't see it coming, but also that, uh, I think I didn't see it coming because my attention was, was consumed trying to see what I was doing in this movie. I did not expect to feel the amount of empathy that I felt for the German soldiers. Uh, we have, we get scene after scene to develop that feeling as we go. And I think a big part of it is how they cast that, like the lead old German soldier of the group has got, uh, did you read about this guy? Kurt He's Lowens. Incredible. Was, what a, what a story. He, he liberated, Holocaust camps and there's something about his face and his performance here where you can't help but not feel the danger that his character is in in giving it up against the soldiers that that we know are the main characters like we were never not on his side I don't mean to correct you but he was he he didn't liberate the Holocaust camps he was a Jew who was in hiding in Holland with his mom and dad as a kid during the war grew up in occupied Holland, having tried to escape Berlin and, and like the Germans invaded Holland the day their ship was supposed to sail to America. And then he spent the war like rescuing fellow Jews as a teenager. Wow. Where's the movie about this guy? His story is insane. Insane. This whole business of like, all right, well, after Crystal knocked, we got to get out of Germany. Let's go to Holland. That's actually a fairly common story. But the whole story of like, all right, well, we've got our tickets. Our ship leaves tomorrow for New York City. New York City. <laughs> this is then, not the first, the first time he's he's portrayed a German officer either. That this is something that he was known for. Yeah. He. Oh my goodness. You know, Adam. He he he's in Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory. 1961. <laughs> I'm looking at the poster on my wall, John. Something I thought about a little watching this was like, is there, is this one of those movies that's an effort to educate the audience on the distinction between German and Nazi? It seems like a, a thing that like some of the soldiers care about and others don't like the like the jewish guy 
like really comes around on these guys. Like he is, he has got some bloodlust at the beginning of this movie and then is just trying to save them once he kind of figures out what their, what their deal is. It's Kurt Lowens that actually says the words, right? We're not Nazis. We're German Wehrmacht. Yeah. And they like see SS troops later on when they're, when they're, you know, trying to get back to, back to camp. Like does 1992, like, need a movie that that makes that distinction for the american public is that the is that the project here is that is that the raison d'etre for this movie i mean the the director and writer of the movie keith gordon is a jewish guy who everybody recognizes he was um he was ronnie dangerfield's son in back to school a fairly a fairly notice knowable uh like face he also married the actor who played janice in this movie what really oh isn't that nuts yeah he's the real life miller (laughs) he he married rachel griffin uh in 1998 wow that's amazing see somebody cared but you know we talk so much about that this era of um in american film where hollywood really was was pushing a post-racial American narrative. You know, at first the movies during this era were at great pains not to mention race. And then by the mid nineties, they'd kind of evolved into a place where they were successfully casting actors of color and just not making reference to race. And I really did feel watching this, Ben, that that kind of, no, 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 these aren't the, these aren't the bad Nazis. These are just regular, good old German normals that over the course of the 20 or the second half of the 20th century, that story got airtime three or four different times. Yeah. Right. There was a version of it in in movies in the 50s and 60s where we see the Germans as kind of noble adversaries and there's always a nazi that we get to hate, but then we get to also... There's a real goose stepper around, but the rest of them are, yeah. just, are just guys that are trying to do a good war. Yeah, guys we could relate to. And you know, and then we go through a period where all, all Ger- Germans in World War II movies are just you know sort of blind adherence to Nazism. And then, you know, we, ha- we have another phase where... Like this is after Das Boot kind of reintroduced the idea that oh we could have a we could have movies about Germans in World War II and have them be the sympathetic leads. Yeah. I don't think you could make this movie now. The whole scene where they're standing around the Christmas tree singing O Tannenbaum, it's like the soccer game uh, on on Christmas Day. I hate, I hate to keep referencing World War One, but. The point of that scene is that the cultural differences between white American soldiers and white German soldiers fighting in Belgium are, it's really almost no difference. There's this theory of like the West as a meta civilization that has lots of like, you know, lots of different ways of subdividing itself, but like overall, like. America and Europe are in a lot of ways one thing that there are like some regional variations within and like you can think of in that in that framework like the it's like this is a civil war between different factions within an imperialist meta civilization that spans the globe and you know the the movement for globalization is happening in the early 90s and i guess like you know building more toward the late 90s but like you don't really hear about like globalization that much in in political discourse anymore but it was i I feel like a hotter topic then and i wonder if there is if it's just kind of in the water that that like theory of of internationalism being represented in a film like this we can all agree on christmas (laughs) if you put it in the context of it being a movie made in 1991 coming out in 92 we are what one year past reunification of germany 
Gorbachev was still president of the Soviet Union in August of 91 when this film was in production. But to your point, Ben, that that the global the globalization and the the post Cold War feeling that history was at an end and what we needed to do now was all come together. <laughs> Fixate less on our differences and more on our commonalities. Yeah, look, look like um, look like some graphic art on the outside of a UNICEF cup. Uh, just, uh, just, it's a small world after all. You're just looking around your room right now. <laughs> we just need to look like a dartboard with the kid from Rose. I mean, not that. Uh, <laughs> something else, something more ecumenical and <laughs> internationalist. Uh, oh yeah, what what about this UNICEF thing? <laughs> But but this was this was a a feeling that the Germans did have in 1944. A lot of Germans on the ground did not believe that the United States entering the war was going to be uh, decisive in the sense that they felt like they had they had way more in common with Americans than Americans seemed to understand. And the Germans were like, "Why are you attacking us when our clear enemies are the Russians who are Slavs and we both know that the Slavs are wrong and Jews. Like, what is the matter with you Americans? Like get on the same page here. And, and Henry a, Ford was like, fucking a, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Joe Kennedy was like, I don't know. I got a point. So I think German troops on the ground were surprised that, that you know, they kind of had the expectation that like Americans are here and they're going to figure this out before too long. They're going to get, they're going to figure it out. Somebody's going to check with Prescott Bush and he's going to get all this completely <laughs> straightened out. There was a time when we had that reputation. Yeah. The figuring it out reputation, I mean. <laughs> now we're a warning to others. Yeah, right. a warning to others. But yeah, a UFO looking down on this. I mean, the German language and the English language are, are basically just accents. Why is this family having a fight? My wife was really surprised that Christmas carols transcend uh, national and linguistic boundaries. Really? And she was comparing them to Jewish prayers, which, you know, the, the melody, there, there are melodies associated with prayers in, in Jewish traditions, and, and they're pretty different, you know, like Sephardium do, do the songs super differently from the way Ashkenazis do. And, uh, and she kind of, I think imagined it, it might be like that. So when, when they start singing, you know, silent night slash Stila Nacht, uh, she was like, what the hell is going on here? How do they both know the song? Right. They're all German and, songs uh, is how I was trying to remember if like a famous German composer had written that one or I couldn't remember, but, um, but but yeah, like the there's also that thing of like Christmas, like the way Christmas is celebrated being a relatively modern like concept and and super German uh, concept. So I, I feel like there's there's a whole film paper to be had somewhere in there that I did, I I could have done research before we recorded today and I failed to. <laughs> but well, really that, interesting um, that the that the the ritual of washing on the body of the dead is not really at all a Christian ritual. It's a yeah, you know, it's a Semitic ritual. It's it's a big a big part of Islam and and Orthodox Judaism to to do that whole like caring for the body after death. I kept wanting Spike Jones to walk in and go, "What kind of shrine y'all got?" <laughs> <laughs> if either of you die and we're in a cabin and there's a bathtub and I take a bath in it. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to move your pot of spaghetti over to make room for us. No, there's no fucking way you'd carry our corpses out into the snow and I would put us beneath a tree. <laughs> there's no, there's no way we're getting blood on your, on the inside of your bathtub. No. Why would I have you in the house? I would not. You would be out. I, what I would have done is position you on a chair by the front door holding a gun as, <laughs> and then people would be like, oh, there's a guard. 
And then you would freeze in the sitting position. I would, I would, I would freeze you in a standing position, embracing a soldier in the enemy <laughs> uniform, probably. Yeah. From time to time, would you grab our arms and pump us like a blood well? You grew, <laughs> you grew up in Alaska. You can't pump a dead body for blood, can you? No, especially not one that's been dead for two days and has been frozen and unfrozen a couple of times. You're not going to get blood. Yeah, out this of blood's thing. not going to come out looking good. <laughs> no, not enough blood to, to draw a bunch of crosses on yourself. Also, it come out like a like a Slurpee machine that isn't ready to dispense the product. Uh, it, it just uh, kind of like spit and and splatter. With a little juice. The real question I had with that scene was not how did they get enough blood out of their dead friend to um to draw all those crosses, but. Where did they get the white paint to draw the big white circles that the blood crosses went on? I couldn't find any goofs about this movie, but that was going to be uh, that was going to be my goof. What made that was that were those scraps of of the same fabric that they used for their cloaks? Hmm. And yeah. if so, how did they stick it on? They cut out the scene where uh, the shed in the back of the chateau was full of tools and old paint. <laughs> I figured there were going to be some goofs just in the sense that for whatever reason, this movie had one of the lowest like special effects slash gear budgets of any movie we've watched. There are yeah. movies, there are movies where they, I mean the movie attack, they at least <laughs> bothered to paint some gray cardboard and put it over the top of some Volkswagen bugs and call them tanks. <laughs> in, in this movie, it seemed like they got a couple of Vietnam era surplus Jeeps and, yeah. and some, some rifles. And that was the 100% extent of their budget. The, the, the explosions that happened were, were basically like vinegar and baking soda in a vo in a volcano. They, they they made this entire. They rented a chateau in Belgium and they made the entire movie like they did not rent a chateau in Belgium. They built the chateau in a high school gymnasium in Utah. Right. It's a three wall set. Whoa! And uh, I think they they scouted some international shooting locations and it. it I think it was all shot in Utah. What? Where did they get the? the I mean, but what about the out the the outside shots of that chateau? Was that just built in Park Park City? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the outside shots. Maybe it was something that was there. I don't know. Oh. It sounds like you were very unsatisfied with the, the the depicted battle scenes in this movie, John. But did you stop to consider that the true battlefield in this film was your mind? How can your mind be a battlefield and a weapon, though? The best weapon. Right. <laughs> God, it's true. Do not ever contradict me in front of the men again. There is a lot of body trauma in this movie between pumping the blood out, washing the body, and then using father's body uh, strapped crucifix style to the back of a jeep as if he were a spoiler providing downforce <laughs> <laughs> i think you got to configure the body in a different way on that jeep there's just not room i mean you can put him on the back like a spare tire it made me laugh in a way that i was not supposed to laugh oh why didn't they do the mash thing where they put him across the hood i was thinking you don't want to warm up a dead body after it's been cold these guys do though. They need to. They need to get at that sweet, sweet blood. Yeah, they're gonna <laughs> pump him for blood in a minute. That's... That would have explained the blood pumping scene if he had been on the hood. Warm him <laughs> up on that engine block. Yep, heat it mm. up. Nice warm yeah. blood spreads like paint. Yeah. <laughs> what did you guys think of the lieutenant? Like, you know, he stands between the major and these soldiers and is sympathetic to their plight and like clearly knows that the major is a tool. I like the idea of a secret friend and that's who I felt like he was. But at the same time, he still fucked them. Like yeah. I wanted to radio you guys to let you know we were leaving. I just didn't have time. Like how, how much is sufficient? How much time does that take, dude? <laughs> yeah. 
this film really did feel like Dead Poet Society in wartime, like with these these sensitive, smart soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. I think the the scene of greatest sensitivity might be one that takes place up in the attic. Here's a question. Did Gary Sinise put himself in the attic or did his squad put him in the attic to keep him away from everyone? He put himself up there. So Gary Sinise is up there. I'm I'm going to be on, on the side of, we got to get Gary Sinise away from us. I mean, there's more tub for the rest of us if we stick Gary Sinise up there. Skip his turn. He's up there looking at paintings. And you get the sense that maybe even more than the rest of the crew, he is the deep, sensitive thinker getting lost in the eyes of these paintings. Look at these paintings, Will, he said. Someone cared. And Will not is just like stunned into silence at this moment. I mean, that was a that was a painting of Vigo the Carpathian. That's what's scary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and when Gary Sinise locked eyes with him, like he was entranced in a bad way, in an evil mm-hmm. way. <laughs> That's right. There is there is no Christmas, only Zul. I hate the word of Vigo. When we look at a midnight clear, will we care? The assembled mm. hosts of Friendly Fire are going <laughs> to gather in the attic to decide. On a scale of one to five paintings, we will review A Midnight Clear. When I think of this movie, I will always remember that feeling of tragedy, of a plan working. Like, okay, here's what the plan is, guys. It's a little bit crazy, but we're going to try it. I think it's going to work. And then you're in the moments before the plan. We're really going to do this? Yeah. All right. Let's do the plan. And then the plan starts to happen. And it's working. Oh my God, this plan is working. It's really going to happen. We're almost done with the plan and then it's over and then it'll be a successful plan. And then blam, the gunfire rings out and the, like there's something so uniquely tragic about not just something failing, but something failing after having worked for so long. And that moment in the climax in this film, I thought was so effective and traumatizing for me in a way that I wanted to be traumatized. This is a movie surrounded by sensitive, smart thinkers, and it's a gear that I didn't think it had for that reason. Like, so often we get a depiction of soldiers where, uh, like, the point is to kill and to accomplish the mission, and then very specifically, it is always in third place, survive. Like, if you can survive, cool. But self-preservation isn't isn't the motivation most times. And I liked being confronted with a group of characters where that seemed to be the highest motivation, that self-preservation instinct. And so I think that's that makes this film's story really interesting. I think it's a little bit tropey to make smart people the sensitive ones and make very clear that when your opposition is big, dumb... Big dumb is often those in command, but they're right. The sensitive ones are right. I was surprised and impressed that this film made you get comfortable in that feeling of their rightness up until the moment when that plan failed. Like it was very not a trope when all of these smart, sensitive people got together to formulate this plan and then it fails in the end. And it not only fails, we get that denouement of a half an hour of driving around with a body on your Jeep. And the survivors, as few as they are, are sent back into the front by someone who I thought was our friend. Like when Lieutenant Ware sends not back into battle, I mean, this was a terribly sad ending. And I liked and appreciated that instead of, you know, a war film that made the case for, you know, heroism and duty overall this the message here was that was just how senseless war is and whether you're smart or you're dumb uh, it's going to kill you in the same way so i'm going to i'm going to give it four and a quarter paintings i really like this movie it came out of nowhere for me um 
Yeah, that seems like a pretty pretty spot on score. I it's hard for me to imagine watching after hearing an episode of a podcast about it like this because I think one of the things I enjoyed so much about it was how little I knew what to expect. How how much the movie had me at its mercy. Like I didn't read anything about it. I didn't watch a trailer before I watched it, and it it was so unlike the kinds of movies we normally watch for this film that I uh, I found the the kind of sense of discovery and newness about it really delightful and and I was honestly like riveted by it I I found it fascinating and um, was really great I thought so I will also give it four and a quarter paintings Vigo paintings Vigo well I'm kind of the outlier here and I wonder whether it is a little bit cultural because the language of this movie um, would have been I mean in 1992 I was 23 when this movie came out so I was I was kind of soaking in the cultural milieu the stew of the the kind of visual and artistic How language come no of the one culture. laughs when you say a word like milieu and everyone laughs when i say denouement <laughs> <laughs> how do you get away with that shit and i don't I love your denouement because it, it went right up your nose the word denouement started coming out of your mouth and then it's like took a u-turn and went up your nose is that not how it's supposed to be said <laughs> adam's got a uh, 200 dollars a day denouement habit <laughs> <laughs> yeah Yes, the milieu of uh, <laughs> of the culture <laughs> in 1992. What kind of uh, accent does John Roderick have? <laughs> so I have the I have the perfect the perfect accent the perfect bland American accent. So so the the production value of this movie, the way that the sound worked, and in particular the kind of meandering quality that the that the script had, and I don't just mean the plot meandered because the plot did meander, but also script wise, like a lot of things are introduced that no one in the film exploits pr primarily the fact that like, this is a squad of smart guys, but they are never, their intelligence is never employed. And also the flip side of it, which, the could have been the plot of this movie, which is that their intelligence leads them into hubris and hubris undoes them, which is kind of nascent in the story. It's never really that that uh, device isn't really like um, explicit or expl or or utilized. Right. Like they're not undone by their hubris. They're in the end. They're just sort of bad soldiers. But the, 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 the fact that they're poor soldiers isn't really related to how smart they are. Their conversations aren't really smart with each other. They are playing a tiny game of chess at one point. But like most most war movies, if you're going to have smart guys, one of them's going to be an explosives expert and one of them's going to be fluent in five languages. We don't get any of that. They, they don't have any capabilities, but they're also not nebbishes and their nebbishness doesn't either rescue them or doom them. And there's so there, there are so many of those throughout the film where it's like, is this a loose end or is this meant to confuse me or am I meant to just forget that, that you you know, you forget that the film kind of works us up into feeling like, like the, the two dead bodies on the road that are standing up and holding each other in an embrace. What are we supposed to do with that? At the end of the movie, that image is still there. I'm still thinking like, who did that? Was that at some point in the middle of the movie, someone speculates like, Oh no, that was a gesture of friendship. <laughs> that was the sign that the Germans want to surrender. They took two dead bodies and, and put them in a hug in the middle of the road. It's like, what? Who's what at what script read 
At what table read did that line go by and nobody was like, Ooh, do we want to, do we want to go back to that? Fill in that idea a little bit. So there's so much of that. So many like threads and the, and the musical cues, the, um, the way it kind of was laid out, it felt like a made for TV movie sometimes to me. And if we were going to, if this movie was going to be labyrinth and there was going to be a fawn in it, I, I kind of would have bought in to a fawn at some point to some, to some weird magic, but without it, I, and especially given that I loved so many of the performances that they were really good, high quality war movie trope laden performances. Why didn't I get into this movie and why didn't I wasn't quite like waiting for it to be done, but definitely doing the denouement. I was wondering if we were going to, if that, if that Jeep was just going to keep driving or if, if when the Lieutenant comes and says, you're headed back to the front, I was like, maybe this movie is going to follow these guys back to the front and there's going to be another plot or maybe going back to the front. We're going to wrap up the plots that this movie has left lying around like so many dead Germans. So I'm going to give it, it is an interesting movie and it's nice to see all these young actors chewing on the scenery. I'm going to give it two of the big Vigo paintings and then a third painting made up of all the littler paintings in the room. So in the end, I'm going to give it all the paintings, but the paintings add up to basically three, three paintings. Wow. Kind of mathy, but all right. (laughs) (laughs) The hit segment at the end of every episode of Friendly Fire is Who's Your Guy? It's where each of the hosts chooses their guy. Ben, who's your guy? I'm going to give it to Avakian um, just for one particular moment that uh, it's another one of these sleight of hand moments where the movie introduces some tension and then somehow gets me to forget about it and and then puts it right back in. And it's the scene where um, they are in the in the trench uh, in the lower uh, lookout post at night and uh ethan hawk has has pulled a pin from a grenade and they are waiting for (laughs) the the spooky sounds that the germans are making to die down and avakian at the end of the scene turns him him and says hey uh go ahead and put that pin back in that grenade (laughs) and like i had forgotten that he he was like white knuckle fisting a grenade at that point and it was just like a oh my god like what if he had just set the grenade down like i might have done that and uh i i loved that moment i thought that was like just it it was a a a real mind blower (laughs) i'd forgotten that there was a a live explosive in play and uh i, I love to avakian for reminding everyone of that how about you john did you have a guy yeah uh, it it has to be frank whaley's character father um he is such a recognizable actor to me for a couple of reasons and one of them is that he uh he has that iconic scene in pulp fiction um, you know, he's the, he's the guy that he, get, he gets his drink drunk. Yeah. He, he's, he's the one that says what? And Samuel L. Jackson says, say what one more time. <laughs> his face is so, you know, just burned into my retina for all time, uh, for that. But he also is the character that he's the baby faced character that kills Hoffa at the end of Hoffa. Anyway, he's in a lot of movies and his face is, is, it just resonates with me because 
He's fresh-faced and young, but there's something sinister about him, too. I'm not sure exactly what. But that performance, uh, uh, his death scene, uh, was the the hook that the whole movie sort of dangled from for me. Because if that was there this whole time, if we're in a world in this movie where that death scene is possible, then what are we doing the rest of the time here? Like, what what's all this other japery? And... Why, you know, like all the scenes of like, we, we were spying on them, but then it turns out they were spying on us and they were teasing us in the dark and we threw snowballs at them and all the, there was an hour and a half of this movie that is like, that it felt like, um, it felt like this was a college film made by me and my friends on a ski trip. And then all of a sudden one of us is like bleeding through the nose and you know, and gasping for air. And I'm like, wow, who knew one of us was an actor? So anyway, he's my guy. And, and, uh, I want to, I want Hollywood to go back in time and use him more in better films. Uh, my guy comes straight out of nowhere. I think I'm not going to say the word, but the, but the last scenes of the film, you know, there's a word for this. I feel like you're lulled into that sense of this thing is winding down. How shocking can it get? I'm ready for my sad ending, and then I'm going to go on with my day. Uh, the grave registrar is a character who has different plans. He clips a dog tag off, puts it in a father's mouth, and then bangs it home with the pliers he used to cut the tag off just uh, crunching it into his soft palate. Just a terrible scene. And I think it's emblematic of, of how this film made me feel in a number of parts. Like, I thought I was safe from a moment like this. And I was not at all. And that character represents that feeling. Like, never off the hook, never safe. I wonder why in the construction of this film, it saved so many of those scenes for for the back half, the back third even. I wonder if I would have felt differently about the film had they been sprinkled throughout a little more evenly. But then when I think about the math of that, I would be more prepared for them when they arrive. So I think the way that it is, is the way that's effective. And uh, I think the grave registrar is maybe the last moment that reminds you that uh, that you can feel really bad in a war film all the way up until it ends. So he's going to be my guy. Good guy. Only one thing left to do, gentlemen. Find out what we will be watching next week. There's only one die for the job. Here it comes. One hit to the body. I've got a weird, I found a weird little velvet bag, a blue velvet bag that says in it's embossed in gold lettering. Congratulations. And I'm not <laughs> sure what, it, what it ever held. I don't know where, it, how it came into my, my uh, realm of bags. Yeah, you I, should keep I, your manscaping trimmer in it. <laughs> uh, I've been keeping the, the green dye in the congratulations bag. And now, here we go, rolling for the next film. Twenty-eight. Bente Ocho. 28 is a 1959 film called Operation Amsterdam. Oh, boy. Takes place in the Netherlands in World War II. Oh, boy. Peter Finch. A lot of good stories. I was in Amsterdam in the 40s. Tell you all about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. When you said operation, I thought for sure uh, petticoat would be the second word in this film title. Nope, Amsterdam is. All right. Looking forward to it, guys. Well, that'll be next week on Friendly Fire. Uh, we're going to leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's from here. In the meantime, for Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And that podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. This year, celebrate the December holidays by revisiting some of your old Friendly Fire faves. Like last year's review of Anthropoid, a 2016 film about two Czech soldiers who parachute into their occupied homeland to assassinate a Nazi officer. Do you feel like supporting our show? Well, please head to MaximumFun.org join, and for as little as $5 a month, you'll gain access to our bonus pork chop feed, as well as all of the bonus content provided by Maximum Fun. You can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. So check that out. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.